Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane, episode 127 on deck for you here today. As you see from the episode title, part two of our chat with Chris Lambert, spotter for the number 11 car in the Cup Series of Denny Hamlin. And what do you know? The week that I have him on, what does he do? He goes out and wins in Las Vegas. I texted him after. I was like, hey, man, I must be your good luck charm or something. And then he was joking with me saying that if they go and win Talladega this weekend, then he may have to come on every single week or maybe take my job. So congratulations to you, Chris. I'm so excited for you guys to hear part two of our conversation. Again, if you thought part one was good, part two blows that out of the water. His honesty, his transparency, his openness. It is unmatched. I don't think that I've ever cried while doing an interview or while editing an interview or (laughs) when putting together a show like this, but I got pretty close, if not crossed that line when I was editing this episode. So I hope you guys like it and I hope you guys enjoy it and appreciate his transparency. We touched on so many topics with that. And we also are going to touch on a lot of topics in this show, including Vegas, Talladega, the 2022 Xfinity and truck series schedule. But before we do any of that, we're paying homage to the number 27 this week in Papa Siegel's Wayback segment. Not a guitar, but a banjo? That's the subject for this week. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 127. Today, we remember one of NASCAR's greatest car builders. Edwin Keith Matthews was known as Banjo because he wore a pair of round glasses that were so thick It made everyone on first impression think of a banjo. Legendary car owner Bud Moore once said, I don't know who thought of it first, but we started calling him Banjo Eyes, and it stuck. Matthews was a successful modified racer in the 50s, and he even ran 51 cup races, but he stopped driving in 1963 to focus on building race cars. Good decision. If you won a NASCAR Cup Series race in the mid-60s through the early 80s, odds are that the car was built by Banjo Matthews. He also was a car owner for a time, including 100 races and 7 wins for the 27 car. His cars not only transformed the sport in terms of their speed, but he also was one of the first to build safety improvements into his cars. From 1974 to 85, cars built by Matthews won 262 of the 362 cup races held. That's a whopping 72%. In 1978, his cars won all 30 races of the season, including a third consecutive championship for a Matthews car. That kind of car building excellence earned Matthews the nickname of the Henry Ford of race cars. Banjo Matthews was nominated for induction into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2020. I hope and expect he'll get in soon, and rightly so. That's all for this week. A short one as I'm banking my time to remember one of my all-time favorites next week who left us too soon. Back to you, Duve. Thank you, Dad. Appreciate that, as always. Yes, I will give you your due next week. Do not worry. Might be a little bit longer than I want, but you know what? You're my dad. Whatever you want, you'll get. Let's start off this episode, as we always do, with a good old-fashioned reggaeton! I'm still in the closet. (laughs) Second week in a row, probably like third or fourth, uh, because Robin has a call outside, and I have my interview with another podcast guest upcoming in the next few weeks shortly here. So I'm relegated to the closet for now. Let's talk about Las Vegas briefly because, well, 
Wasn't that much to talk about, to be honest. <laughs> Denny Hamlin wins a relatively calm, kind of eh, just fine, Las Vegas Motor Speedway event to kick off the round of 12. He is on to the round of 8, and man, he was pretty hype about it. He was screaming some expletives on the radio after the race. Chris Gabehart was saying, Viva Las Vegas, and he said, F yeah. I mean, it's big time, though. Not only his first win at Las Vegas Motor Speedway in over 20 races, but now he is safe and sound from Talladega, from the Roval. He is round of eight bound. That is big. What may be bigger is what the party was like, or in this case when I asked Chris Gabehart and Denny Hamlin this question, what the party was going to be like because Vegas and Denny Hamlin, I feel like that could be dangerous. You said you're going to be up all night, so what's the party going to be like? <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be up all night or not, but I guarantee I got enough energy to do it at the moment. Uh, you know, I just can't think of a better place to win. You know, I mean, the Southern 500 at Darlington was huge, but this was this was statistically Denny's worst racetrack, barring any, you know, short-term road course type stuff. And uh, for us to be able to be able to triumph here and do it consistently now, I mean, we had a great, we had the best car here a year ago, we had a really good car this spring, and and certainly had a top two car um, tonight. Uh, you know, it just shows what this race team's capable of, and I'm proud of it. Danny, what about you? What's the party going to be like? <laughs> I can't tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I'm debating 50-50 uh, whether I'm staying or going, so we'll see. I, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> uh, I got to get the kids from school tomorrow, so I got <laughs> to still somewhat be a little bit responsible. I do not know whether or not Denny stayed. My guess is that he maybe stayed a little bit and then took his jet back home and, and took his girls to school and picked them up. But who knows? We'll see. Maybe I'll ask him next time I talk to him or maybe I'll text Lambert and see what he has to say. Just some other things to tie up from this race. Hendrick Motorsports, they kind of blew it on strategy and they admitted as much as well. I mean, Larson was really, really quick, one stage one but they stayed out a little bit longer than, in hindsight, they should have, and he wasn't able to recover. William Byron was super quick, lightning fast, came from the back to the front, led some laps after failing pre-race inspection, but had a couple pit issues and a flat tire late that relegated him outside the top 15. Alex Bowman had a loose wheel towards the end of the race. The only driver out of the Hendrick stable to rebound was Chase Elliott, who ended up finishing second, but that only happened because under green, before stage two ended, I believe, he was able to pass the leader on speed, unlap himself, and then get back on sleek counts with everybody. So, Hendrick Motorsports did not do themselves any favors, that's for sure. Let's take a look at the cut line real quick, heading to Talladega. William Byron is four below, Kevin Harvick seven below, Alex Bowman 13 below, and Christopher Bell digging himself a pretty deep hole, 25 points below the cut line. You got Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano, six and four points to the good. And then Chase Elliott is over 20 points to the good. So it seems like it's going to be those six drivers battling for who makes it, who misses the cutoff when we get to the end of the Charlotte Roval in a couple weeks. Josh freaking Barry does it again. How do you like that? That man good. That boy good. Michael Annette out of the one car. Josh Berry gets in the one car, and he wins again. Crazy. He is so damn good, and I'm so excited to see him in a full-time ride with this team next season. He has now led more laps in his Xfinity Series career, which has been a partial schedule this year, than Michael Annette has in his entire career. Just let that sink in for a second. Second win of the season for Josh Berry. He does it with the organization that he is accustomed to for this season, but not the specific team. He won in the eight car earlier this year at Martinsville. He wins in the one car at Vegas the same weekend that he could have been in the eight late model junior motorsports car at Martinsville, whipping on him in the Valley Star Credit Union 300. Regardless, man, junior motorsports, they don't only get the win, they finish one, two, three with Justin Allgaier, Noah Gregson. What a night for junior motorsports and what a night for Josh Barry. Yeah, I don't really know how to, how to feel right away. Um, you know, first of all, I'm just so proud of this one team. Um, you know, they've been through a lot this year and, and, um, you know, I'm so, I'm so thankful that they, them and everybody at JRM, Michael Annette, all, um, all of his group, um, you know, Pilot Flying J, TMC, everybody that's a part of this program trusted me to drive it, um, you know, for, first and foremost. And, um, you know, really every race that I've ran for this group, I thought we've had really good cars. We had a, 
you know, exceptional race going at Michigan and it just kind of went away from us at the end. So, um, you know, the mile and a half has been tough for me this year. Um, you know, it's been quite a learning curve, but, um, we nailed it tonight and, uh, you know, I, they were, um, they were confident in, in, you know, how we would be at the end of the race. They felt like we were positioned to be, to be really good at the end. And I just trusted that, you know, worked on the bottom, just try to get more, be more disciplined and, and uh, work on the car. And we were just, it just came alive the last 75 laps. Let's also give a call to the truck series and Thor sport racing. How about Christian Eckes? It's not Eckes, it's Eckes wins his first career race in the camping world truck series. And he does it with his three teammates right behind him. One, two, three, four finish for Thor Sport Racing. That is a truck series record. The first time that an organization has swept the top four spots, Thor Sport Racing does it at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Thanks to a late race restart that helped Christian Eckes get up front past those top contenders. Big, big deal for him, especially given the last couple years and what that's done for his career. No real playoff implications since he is not a playoff driver, but still, big night for Thor Sport and big night for Eckes. Yeah, it's been tough for sure. Um, I think this is my ninth start of the year. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's been tough not, not being able to build with the team. You know, obviously, Grant's been in the truck and done a great job, which has helped us a lot. Um, but for me personally, you know, not being in the truck has definitely you know, caused a little bit of detriment to myself. But, um, you know, I worked, I worked really hard this week. You know, we, we know who won last week. It's my old truck, and you know, I wanted to go prove to everybody I could still do this. So, um, yeah, we, we, uh, we did a good job today. Before we throw it over to part two of my chat with Chris Lambert, got to tell you guys about Rhino Classifieds. Of course, this week, as always, I got to give them a shout-out because they came on the scene with a bang. They gave away Vaughn Gittin Jr.'s drift truck, and Rhino was created by the founder of Racing Junk, because he wanted to create a more streamlined buying and selling app that allowed users to see just what they wanted rather than all that crap and all the ads that get in the way. So head on over to rhino.co, sign up for a free account, find the car part, race car, classic car, modified street machine, whatever it is you're looking for, or you can post yours. Rhino.co, classified for racers, built by racers. And I also have a promo code to watch the action this weekend on Speed 51 from Five Flags Speedway in Pensacola, Florida for free. Let me repeat that, for free. Check my social media feed, my Twitter account at Davy Center to see how you can enter to win a free code to watch the action on pay-per-view from Five Flags Speedway. Again, check out my social media accounts, Five Flags Speedway, Speed 51. They're trying to hook y'all up and I'm trying to do it too, so check them out. Throwing it over to part two of my chat with Chris Lambert, spotter of the 11 car in the Cup Series for Denny Hamlin. And if you guys remember where we left off last week, we were talking about his time spotting in the 24-hour race at Daytona, how he kind of takes naps and rotates with some other spotters. And that came after over an hour of incredible conversation about his time, how he got into spotting, his time with Red Bull Racing, all the drivers that he's worked with in the past, how his job differs from driver to driver, winning three Daytona 500s. And you'd say to yourself, Chris Lambert, he's got it all going for him. If you guys didn't know, he suffered some personal tragedy over 20 years ago. And October 16th, 1999, that day changed his life forever. And that's where this conversation begins. And like I told you guys at the start of the show, there has never been a show or an episode or an interview that I have almost and or cried during the interview after when I was editing it. But man, this really tugs at your heartstrings. It is super emotional. It's super heavy. So I want to give you guys a warning about that. But without further ado, I will let you guys hear where we picked up our conversation talking about that day that changed his life forever. No real easy way to uh, transfer into this topic, but obviously October 16th, 1999, your life changed forever that day. What do you remember about that day specifically? And then what were the days and the months like that followed that day? Believe it or not, I think I remember every waking moment, minute, second of that day. Um, I know a lot of times our brains are triggered to, to try and help us forget traumatic experiences or put things in the past. But um, it was your typical Saturday at the time. Um, 
my wife had actually gotten up and and taken my son Austin down to Charlotte to a park to meet some friends to just have a play date and then she was going to take him to her mom's after she got done and then her and I were going to go out for a dinner date um I was actually playing softball uh at a local softball tournament that day so I had gotten up and left to go play an early early morning softball game she got up and went to the park um well, she got up and went to breakfast, I guess, first off, and then came back home. I came home between games, and uh, she she was getting ready to take him to the park. So when I left to go back for our second game, as I backed out of the driveway and started to pull off, he's standing at the storm door, you know, basically just watching me leave as I'm driving off. And that's my last experience that I obviously remember seeing him. But um, as the day progressed and we played softball and she was supposed to be at her mom's for the to drop him off, her mom and her sister and I start communicating that they haven't heard from her, that she was on her way there a couple of hours ago. So I start backtracking the way that I thought she would have left the, this park in Charlotte going to her mom's and um, ended up getting a call from her sister telling me I need to get to the hospital at Northeast Medical Center there in Concord. And um, obviously by the time I got there, he had been life lighted from there to CMC Maine in Charlotte to the children's ward down there. And, uh, my wife Haley at the time, they had opened her up to do emergency surgery on her and realized that when they opened her up, that there was nothing that they could do for her, that her insides were just so mangled that, um, nothing that they could do to, to make it any better that she was not going to survive. So they allowed her parents and myself and her family to go in and basically say our goodbyes. And um, then immediately I had to catch my aunt and uncle were there and they rushed me to CMC Maine, which is about a 30 minute ride from where we were at the hospital in Concord. And um, when I got there, I learned that my son had passed away in the flight and that they would allow me as much time as I wanted to go in and sit with him. I went in and sat with him and held him for probably an hour and a half, two hours. You would never know by looking at him wrapped up in the blanket there was anything wrong with him um but as you know as a 15 month old they're not very big and that body's not very big anyway but it was just a blunt trauma that had ended up being what had gotten him but you would never know what you not, not a mark on him i mean that's that's the weirdest thing about it to see it but um that's definitely the hardest the hardest time the hardest day to this day, that day comes around. There's days I don't want to get out of bed. You know, his birthday, that day, my wife's birthday at the time. So, um, yeah, here we are almost 22 years later, and um, it's still not any easier than it was, but it's uh, it made me think about some of the ways that I was living my life and realize what was really important and put some thought into how would they want me to live my life and uh i think it changed me for the better i feel like i'm a way better man a way better husband a way better dad than i ever could have been um but it was a it was a hard learning experience to go through i know that there's probably some listeners that have experienced some loss and some trauma in their lives and they have probably learned on the fly on how to cope with such losses how did you cope honestly not very well um Thankfully, I had a strong support group around me that that tried to keep me focused and tried to keep me, you know, upbeat and, you know, the, the glass half full kind of crowd around me, you know, that everything happens for a reason. And right. you, may, you may not know that reason until the day you pass on and walk through the pearly gates and get to question why at that point in time. And you may question it from for the rest of your time on this earth, but you may never know. Um, but I went down a dark hole. I started, I never was a heavy drinker in school, but I started drinking quite heavily. Um, just to be honest, I tried probably every drug that there was out there, just trying to numb the pain and, and make me forget. And then, and, and just help me approach each day as it came. And I woke up in a house in Indian trail after being at a club one night. And the next morning when I woke up, I had no cell phone. My wallet was gone. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know anybody that was in the house with me. Um, and it took that to where it was like, you know, 
what in the hell are you doing? I mean, this is not how they would want you to live your life. Um, at the time, my grandparents, my grandparents who had helped raise me from a young age was still around and they were trying their best to help me. And it was like, you're pushing all these people away that are trying to help you cope and help you do things the right way. And obviously what you're doing is not working. So it took that, that experience to just, I guess, snap me back to like, Hey, you dumbass, what, what are you doing? This is not how they would want you to approach life. This is not what life's about. Yeah. Um, and thankfully that support group that I had been pushing away was still strong enough and still cared about me and loved me enough to still be there. And, and I really started healing and it was probably four to six months after that, after the accident itself, that it really brought me back to where I started rebuilding myself and, and trying to make myself a better man. A big part of that rebuilding process was your wife now, Angela. And in the articles that I read, I can't help but crack a smile at how you guys met and how that relationship was forged because it goes back to Haley, which I found very interesting. Um, and I assume that she was one of, if not the main person in that support system that you mentioned to, to let you talk about things, let you cry, let you vent. And here you guys are now with Hunter and Cameron, now teenagers. It's just crazy how, how life takes you in certain ways and, and le leads you to certain paths. And from that moment, life kind of led you to Angela and here you guys are now, you know, 20 some odd years later. It's, it's crazy how that all works out, isn't it? It is. It, it makes you understand that there's, there's obviously a, um, a bigger story than what you see on an everyday basis. Um, everything I'm a firm believer now that everything happens for a reason. Um, right, wrong, or indifferent. It just, it's just the way life flows. And, um, it's almost like that it was Haley sort of helping guiding Angela into my life. Cause at the mm -hmm. time, um, they were really good friends. Angela was off at Appalachian state university going to college. Haley and I had gotten married and, and had Austin and you know, I was working and she was working and we were just trying to build a young life together. And, Angela would come home on the weekends or certain weekends. And, you know, I'd let Haley, I'd stay with Austin and Haley could go out and have girls night out just to, cause she's still, still 20 years old at the time and just young. And, yeah. And, um, Angela would come by the house and hang out and see Austin and, you know, just, just high school friends that had grown up together. And, um, so it's, it's weird how it all worked out, but, you know, I don't know where I would be without, without Angela's support. Um, we, I tell this, I told the story, you know, there, she hugged me at the, at the funeral home that night when she was coming through the receiving line and just something about that hug just stuck with me. It's like, I, I don't know what it was. It was different. It was, and she didn't really, like I said, I wasn't living my life on the where the way I should have. I wasn't a thug by no means. And I wasn't, I was just a young kid that was trying to navigate life at the time with a newborn and everything else and mm -hmm. loved racing and loved hanging out with my friends. But, Angela really didn't, didn't really care for me at the time as far as one-on-one -on -one interaction. So, um, something about that hug is like, well, that was a little weird, but okay. And then as the grieving process went on and we started trying to better myself, I reached out and we started talking and we actually started dating and we made it maybe eight or nine months. And I'm like, I can't do this. You know, this is just not working out. Um, I don't feel comfortable with this. I just don't feel like that it's what I should be doing at the time. Um, nothing against you. It's the old, you know, it's not you, it's me, yep. which was hundred percent true at that time. Um, yeah. I was still trying to figure things out and navigate and figure out what made me happy. And so we actually broke up for about six months and, um, we stayed in contact. She would check in on me, you know, we'd go to dinner and see each other, but that was a hundred percent our relationship, you know, just, very, very sporadic. And, mm -hmm. and luckily when we got back together and tried to make it work again months down the road, uh, that process and me figuring out who I was and our relationship has been as strong as it ever was going to be. And, um, it's, it, I think it made her understand too, that, you know, there was times that I just needed to cry and vent and show my frustration and all. And, and instead of her, 
trying to talk me out of it or tell me everything's going to be better. She just listened. She just held me, hugged me, let me cry, let me do whatever I'm going to do and, and just let me get it all out. And she was there for me. And our, our relationship has been as strong as it's ever been. And, um, it's 100% because she stood by me through that time and, and let me do me. And, um, and it's the same way with her now. I mean, we've been married for, I guess almost 19 years now. And, and it's, she's been through some stuff for losing her mom recently and stuff. And mm -hmm. first person she's ever really been that close to that she's lost. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been there. I don't, I've lost my mom at a young age. So I don't really remember that side of it, but I just know the grieving process. So it's, um, it's, I'm in a really good place right now, family wise, professional wise and everything else. So it's, uh, but it's still not something I'd wish on my worst enemy. Absolutely. The last thing that I want to kind of ask about that is you mentioned, you know, it's been over 20 years. You, you never forget, you never will. And it still affects you on certain days. It could be the anniversary. It could be his birthday. It could be whatever. It could be a random day. But as cliche as it is to say, it makes, you know, people like me from the outside, it makes me happy to see you happy. And if that's how I feel, I can only imagine how it makes Angela feel, how it makes your kids feel, and honestly, how it makes you feel to know that after all this time, you are happy and you are living your life the way that Haley would have wanted. You know what I mean? So in a way, as you said, it's crazy to think in that moment and even looking back on it, you know, that was a blessing in disguise. And I don't know if, you know, people will go that far, but it's just good and it, it should make you happy to see yourself this happy. And reflecting on it now, all those years later, having the foresight to think back on that moment and to, to honor them in the way that you have, it should make you feel good. And I assume that it does. Is that correct? It does. It really does. Um, you know, it's like I said, I feel like the whole entire experience has made me a better man, a better dad, a better husband, a better son, a better just human in general. Yeah. Um, I think I view things a lot differently from a lot of people even my age or a little older that had come up the same time and same generation and stuff, but just, um, something as simple as like COVID right now. Um, I'm the sounding board for Angela cause she's obviously worried about, she works at elementary school as a, as a mm -hmm. teacher's assistant. My boys are in school and, you know, not knowing as a parent, what the right thing to do for your kids, you know, the mask versus no mask, the vaccine right. versus no vaccine. You just, there's all these different things and social media is a great thing, but it can also be one of the worst things as well, because anybody can just jump on and just type in whatever they want to type in and, yep. and you have to take it for what it is. But I'm the sounding board for her as far as like, don't sweat the small stuff. You know what I mean? There's, that's just, that's just how I live my life. I yep. mean, um, it's, it's how I approach things, whether it's, going to the doctor's office and having a new issue and not knowing what's going to go on. A lot of people were first was automatically it's cancer or it's something. And I'm just like, you know what I mean? There's, there's, there's all these different doctors and services out there that you can treat about anything nowadays. Our, our, our medical field is so smart that you can almost treat anything nowadays. So don't worry about it until you're told what it is. Don't, don't live your life in fear. And, it's made me approach life that way, but you know, Angela and the boys, I am happy. Um, I never thought I would get back to that point. I almost thought whenever I first started experiencing life in a different way and, and seeing my boys now when they took their first steps or they first crawled or they first talked, um, and remembering back to Austin's first everything, it was like almost, I was shaming myself for being happy. Uh, that's unfair that, you know, Haley's not here and Austin's not here and her family is that they would experience the first with them. Like we were able to back before they passed. And, you know, is it selfish of me? Am, am I being selfish? Is it unfair or what have you? And I'm yeah. like, you know what? It's life, life moves on with or without you and you have to adapt and, and move on. And I've learned that it's okay for me to be a happy and it's okay for me to experience these things. And it's definitely what they would want if, if they were here. So it, it took a lot of, a lot of time. It's still a, a process, a day-to-day -day process. Now um, there's days, like I said, that I don't want to get out of the bed and 
don't even want to roll over and see what the, the alarm on the phone is or anything else. I just want to hit it and roll back over and go back to sleep and just forget yeah. about it. But um, it's, it's taken a lot of years, taken a lot of time from people that have put the effort in around me and, and, Oh, Oh, where I am right now to a lot of different people. I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate you opening up and sharing that stuff. And I know you've done it before, but I know it's never easy. So I thank you for your openness and your honesty. It's, it's very, uh, pe- people need to hear that stuff. You know what I mean? Right. And I know you know that. So, so I thank you. Yeah. I thank you so much for that. Absolutely. And then, you know, it's, it's, if, if, if one person, if one person that's dealing with something, you know, whether it's the death of a loved one or, or they're dealing with sickness or you know, health or whatever it could be just to, to know that there's always somebody out there that has been through something similar. Uh, I can't tell you that I know how you feel because I don't, we could go through the exact same thing and you're going to feel different from I do. It's just how we are as yeah. we, we're, we're all wired a little differently. We all handle mm-hmm. things a little differently and we all view things a little differently. But, um, I have been through it, but and if, if I can get through it, anybody can get through it. So that's just, if it helps one person, then it's definitely worth it. And it helps me to talk about it. I mean, it, yeah. it does me good to get it off my chest every once in a while and just let it out there. And just, you know, when we get done here, I'll, I'll go sit down and just reflect and be like, and then I'll think about it for a few minutes or a few hours. And then, you know, I'll start my day again and, and, and go on. So it, it does me good as well. I'm glad that I could help in that, in that little respect. All right. No, no easy way to transition out of that hard right turn, but let's get back to racing here. Uh, I guess six, seven years later, December, 2006, you decided to get back into racing full time. You mentioned MB2, Regan Smith. Was there any specific reason behind the timing of, of getting back into the sport on kind of a full time basis at that point? Yeah, there was, it was, um, so my oldest was born in, in July of 04. And my youngest was born in August of 06. Gotcha. So at the time I was managing a Dodge Chrysler Jeep parts department. And my wife, Angela, was a, a physical therapy assistant at a little local place here in, in Concord called Health South Physical Therapy, which they transitioned to, I think it's called Select Physical Therapy now. But at the time, the little, the little office that she was running, she was the receptionist. She was the counts payable. She checked you in, but she was also a therapy assistant. So she helped the therapist with different issues throughout the day. Little small office, just one therapist and hers, only ones that was there. And when she got pregnant with Cameron and, and Cameron was born, she wanted to stay at home and, and raise our boys. So I had a two year old and a newborn at the time. And, um, the only way that I could supplement her income was to go back racing full time. And I had had a few offers over the years, but never really nothing that just jumped out at me. And at the same time, it was the internet craze was starting the car business, the the parts business, the car business as a whole was starting to transition to, you can go online and figure out what the bottom dollar you can pay for a car. So the negotiation stuff was all the writing on the wall all the writing on the wall, you know, wasn't making the kind of money that I had been making the years prior. So, right. um, Doug Randolph had actually reached out to me from MB2 at the time and said, Hey, I got your name from a friend of ours. Thought you'd be good. We're going to run Craig Kinzer, which is Steve Kinzer's son from the world of outlaws side things. We're going to run him in a few ARCA races at the end of the year. We're going to run him in the Morgan dollar truck full time. Um, thought maybe you might be a good fit for the kid and um, see if you're interested. So I went and done a couple of ARCA races at the end of 06. Um, we ran really well. And they were starting that Xfinity team or Bush team for Regan Smith yeah. again deal for 07. So Doug offered me a full-time job to come do all of Craig's truck stuff through Morgan Dollar, all of Regan's Xfinity stuff through the team and run a, a fourth cup car with Regan a handful of times, but also work in the parts department at the shop. So that was my background was parts and racing and all. And I went and done, had a good time with those guys, the three or four ARCA races I did. So, um, I was able to supplement her income and allow her to stay at home with the boys and and raise the boys and be a full-time mom. Um, but we knew it would take me traveling and being gone and missing some stuff, but it was a trade-off that we were willing to, to do. So, um, I went to work in December of 06 full time back into racing again. So it had been what, six, seven years at that point from the last time you had spotted or were you doing some stuff in between? I was doing some stuff in between. So I guess 
So I quit Mike Herman racing full time in 99 before the accident. Um, at the end of 98, I, I left him full time and went back to the dealership full time, but I was still doing some ARCA. Like I did some one-off ARCA stuff with Clay Rogers. Um, I did some um, uh, Hooters Pro Cup racing with Clay Rogers and Rodney Childers, which I grew up with Rodney from the time we were kids as well. Mm-hmm. Rodney was still driving at the time. Um, Jeff Fultz that owns Fury Race Cars now with the Uries and with Kaz Grala and those guys. Um, Jeff was still racing for JC3, CNC Bowler team out of Charlotte running the All-Pro Series. So I would go do some one-off stuff with them. So I was still around, but not nothing full-time. But I wasn't just spotting either. I would be changing front tires one day on an All-Pro car and then spotting yeah. a Hooters Pro Cup car the next weekend. Doing it all. Doing it all. So, um, But then – full-time that was the first time i started back full-time with anything and it had been probably six i guess seven years eight years maybe gotcha okay you mentioned rodney childers um and i know as i mentioned i've kept you so long so we'll get out of here with some uh some quick things but some fun things as well okay what was your reaction when your good friend tim fito had dropped that sandwich off the pagoda at indy did you know he was in for it then well at the time i knew it could possibly be um and the way it all worked out, it was just the perfect storm. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, we were up on the very, we weren't in the normal spotter stand. There's actually a second level that goes up. That's even higher than the spotter stand. And that's where the snipers normally are during race days. Um, that's where we were at for practice. So you only had to have one guy cause you can see the whole track from that area where if you're down in the normal stand, you got to have two. Mm-hmm. So most of us were up there just going to practices and, Tim was really good about bringing Jimmy John sandwiches because obviously Jimmy John's was one obviously, of the yeah. spotters and who don't like a Jimmy John sandwich. So, um, and it just happened to be one of the, one of the guys that doesn't spot full time, Chad Sims from out in California just happened to be there. And Tim said, Hey, do you want a sandwich? And he's like, yeah. So he tossed it. Well, Chad fumbled it, dropped it Oh man, off the side of the building. And, you know, we're all looking over trying to see, but, I guess the worst part is when it lands about 15 feet from the track president. <laughs> That's a problem. Um, so, of course, Elton Sawyer was one of the first ones that came up on the roof that day and was just questioning what happened and all. And it was to see Tim having to call Rodney on the phone and tell him, hey, I'm not going to be here for second practice. I've got to go sit in with NASCAR. You're taking my hard card away. <laughs> taking my hard card away you need to send the truck driver or somebody up oh my god and at the time i'm trying to call rodney and and one of the other guys is trying to call cheddar the car chief on the four and just yeah. trying to we couldn't get rodney because he's working um we got people trying to call josh jones and trying to call kevin so kevin can get you just it was we were all in a panic mode um thankfully it didn't it ended up being where they made it a little light joke about it and stuff like yeah. that but at the time i mean we were we thought they were going to kick him out for the entire weekend and he wouldn't be able to work. So it was, it's crazy. it was a uh, desperation mode for a lot of us. The funny part is though, like, you know, knowing Tim as I do, you know him way better, obviously, but he's one of the nicest guys ever. Right. The so nicest. the fact that that happened to him, it just is like, come on, really? The nicest guy you'll ever meet, the most helpful, somebody that helped me when I first got into the sport to, to mm-hmm. learn the right way, the wrong way how you approach the weekend, just a lot of the stuff that I've still used today. I learned from Tim and, um, to see him with the look on his face and you could tell he was scared to death, not knowing what's going to happen oh, when yeah. they're, when they're taking too. off the roof. And it was, it was scary for all of us. And I mean, it was a simple mistake that could happen to anybody, but of all people to happen to him. And, yeah. um, it was, it, it was, it's funny now to look back on it, but it was scary at the time. Yeah. I know earlier this year, you guys won the Southern 500, and that, if I believe I have my research right, is your favorite track, Darlington Raceway. So winning that race for the first time with Denny, uh, that must have meant a lot to you as well. I know Daytona is a big big thing, especially the way that spotters are treated there, as we've talked about, but Darlington, Southern 500, that's bucket list too. By far. Luckily, this is my second one. Um, Right, excuse me, the second time. We won it in 17 with Denny as well. the drive when we stayed out on tires and, and he drove back through the field. We caught yeah, Martin. I was at that race. I should have remembered that. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Darlington, just the history of the racetrack, um, the racetrack itself, it's a driver's racetrack as we all talked about, which your average fan may not know what that means, but it's just so physically demanding on the drivers and the, the concentration it takes to run right up against the wall, lap after lap after lap and not step over the edge. Yep. Um, but it's just, 
the history there. Um, I was a Bobby Allison fan growing up. I was also uh, a David Pearson fan growing up as a kid. So, you know, you got well, I call those American badasses that would go there Damn and right. steering boxes and the big steering wheels and you watch them and it look like you're driving a truck yeah. um, or a bus around that place. You know what I mean? But to me, that's just the, it's the ultimate racetrack, the history, the Southern 500s history. Um, but it's, it's, I, I made the comment in victory lane that, that night a few weeks ago, you know, Daytona's are all great because of the input that we do have, but the Southern 500 trophy which I have in my trophy room here at the house and getting another one for this one, but it's by far my favorite trophy, my favorite win. And it'll be the one that I talk about way more than the, the Daytona 500s when it's yeah. all said. That's cool. Does Denny get you guys like replica trophies? Cause I assume he keeps the real one, right? He keeps the real one and the team will make a replica of the big one, but they offer like mini trophies, what they call mini, which the mini gotcha. trophy for this one, I want to say it's still like almost four feet tall. Damn. Um, and it has all the driver's plates on it, just like, you know, the picture plates for all the winners from the past. It had, yeah. it looks just like the, the, the full That's size awesome. trophy. It's just a, a replica smaller size, but Benny, he's been really good about that over the years, whether it's him and the crew chief going in together or him himself. But, um, from my very first win with him at Phoenix in 2012, with the big sun, bright yellow, green sun, um, yeah. sponsorship thing, or, the Daytona 500 mini trophies or whatever. He's been really good about, about buying not only the 18 guys, but the over the wall guys and anybody attached to the 11 car back at the shop. He's always bought them replica trophies and made sure that we were a part of that win. Or even the guys that don't travel were a part of that win. So he's been really good about that. You got any mini grandfather clocks that, uh, chirp in the house? You know, I do not. So funny story in 2015, we won Martinsville with Denny and Dave Rogers was crew chief in us at the time. Mm-hmm. And he gave Dave the trophy. He gave Dave the, the grandfather clock. And we had the opportunity to buy grandfather clocks as our own, but mm-hmm. I want to say they're like 32 or 3,300 bucks. And I just didn't, I'm like, you know what? I'm with Denny Hamlin. I'll win Martinsville again. Yeah. I'll get, <laughs> I'll get one eventually. Right. So, yeah. Um, Easier said than done, obviously, with uh-huh. SMT data and everybody picking up and can see what he does with his footwork inside the car and all the little tricks of the trade that guys have had at different racetracks are gone now because you can just overlap your data and see what they're doing and figure it out. So um, we've been close a few times here lately since 2015, but we haven't yeah. won. He had told me a few years ago it was actually it was the night that we got into it with Chase. I think it was 17, the night we wrecked Chase there and it blew yeah. up. And, um, but that was my, it was my birth. My birthday's October 29th. And I want to say we were racing on the 29th that year. And he told oh, me that was ready. your clock. He, he told me on the radio before the race, he said, Lambert, when we win the race tonight, the clock's yours. Man. And like, Perfect. And we were right there until oh. obviously the, the very end. But, um, I don't have a, a grandfather clock, but hopefully if, if I can promise you, if we ever win one again, I will buy myself a grandfather clock. Well, this year at Martinsville, as you know, it's around Halloween weekend, right around your birthday. So you guys go in that one, you'll get a clock. Easy. Yes. yes. Even if I have to buy it myself, I will. If, if we win Martinsville at any point, yeah. I promise you, I will get myself a clock. All right. I'm holding you to that. All right. A couple more quick ones here. Uh, I know that you know a guy who knows a guy named Michael Jordan. So have you met him yet? I have. So that's another funny story. Um, so I met Michael when I was a kid. Oh. So my uncle steve um graduated from carolina played basketball at carolina for dean cool. smith back in the day wow and back in That's back legit. in back in the, those days anybody that come through the program that went on whether it was successful businessman or whatever they had what they called the big brother program at carolina back in the day so mm-hmm. They would bring in former players that had played that were now successful on the business side or just in life in general and sort of mentor these kids coming in. So lo and behold, my uncle gets a freshman coming in from Wilmington, North Carolina named Michael Jordan. <laughs> so to this day, my uncle, he lives at Myrtle Beach right now, but he lived at Lake Norman forever and was yeah. successful. He worked at Bill Crest Cannon and the board of directors and worked his way up. And then when they got sold, he moved on to a company out of Canada that he worked for. Um, but he's been a part of the Rams, the Rams club at Carolina and he's in the donates money and has tickets. Yeah, yeah. And stuff. Well, so my whole family is Carolina fans. Um, 
And then when Johnny Dawkins came to Duke around 1982, 1983, I'm nine or 10 years old. I become the biggest Duke fan you've ever seen before in your life. Uh-oh. So now that ain't good. I'm a huge Duke fan, but so my uncle was sending me to Carolina basketball camps as I was a kid. Um, one of the funniest stories he'll tell he likes to tell is I'm this is back before cell phones. This is probably in 1986, maybe 85, uh-huh. 86. Um, I'm in what they called Keenan or the the athletic dorms during the summer. Of course, they're all gone, but that's basketball camp. That's where we stayed. I'm on the payphone talking to my uncle who just paid like 13 or 1400 bucks to send me this week long basketball camp. Yeah. Somebody runs in and says, MJ's here. I'm like, love, you got to go by and hang up on him and take off outside <laughs> so I could go meet MJ. Um, but it was right after his rookie year, I want to say with the bulls and yeah. he came back to be there for the, for the, the basketball camp. So got to actually physically watch him jump over, Curtis Hunter, who was six eight at the time at Carolina, and dunk on him during one of the warm up games. But um, so I got to meet him back then. But obviously in 2014, the first year that we made the chase um, yeah. with me and the Final Four, I guess the first time they did the Final Four, um, Michael came to Homestead to support Denny, and right. pulled on. I'm at the bus hanging out before the race, and this bright yellow Lamborghini SUV pulls in. And it's someone's here. It's Michael Jordan. He gets out. He's got a few guys with him. And um, so I got to meet him then and, and chat for a little bit. And then he was like, you know, hey, Chris will be the guy you hear on the radio later on. And, and uh, so that was a cool experience as well. That's awesome. Last thing, looking at your social media, I noticed that you from North Carolina are a diehard Red Sox fan. Yes. H- how does that happen? So I guess I've always been the type, especially when it comes to professional sports, that and I guess, honestly, the reason I'm a Duke fan is because of one guy, was Johnny Dawkins. But I've always been player-driven more so than team-driven. Fair. Um, and I played sports growing up. I played baseball, I played basketball, and I played football. But um, baseball was probably my favorite and the sport I was the best at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I played third base. Um, Me too. So I was a third baseman and growing up, and I caught – we had one pitcher that anytime he pitched in high school or middle school, he wanted me to catch him. So I caught him, but – I wasn't a catcher by no means. Me neither. Um, but I was a I was a pretty good third baseman. Had some college interest and and um, my favorite player at the time was Wade Boggs. Okay. And he was a third baseman. He was obviously with the Red Sox. And um, he's just who I tried to to morph my game after somebody that I really looked up to. Being back before the internet days, you really didn't have stuff to look up stats or look up videos and stuff like we do now. You know, rumors in the garage do say that Chris Lambert is the next Wade Boggs. So yeah, well, yes, (laughs) in my own mind anyway. Right. So, (laughs) right. Um, so he's just somebody that I liked and I just become, I pull for the Red Sox just because of him. And then when they started building more and more with Roger Clemens and, and those guys, and then no Mark Garcia Paradise and stuff, it's just, uh, it was, I was severely anti-Yankees just because of how they approached things and how they won and and, and, and all that stuff. And I uh, respect everything that they do, especially now that through Jay Fry, through Red Bull, and, and oh, yeah. that stuff, we got to go and actually go to several games in New York. Very um, cool. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he was the head athletic director for the Yankees for years. Gene Monahan. Gene Monahan. So Gene, you know, him and Jay have been friends. He actually works at Engine Motorsports now, but we got to go – like pre pre Pocono weekends, if they were in town, we'd go up and get to go to some games and go meet the players and stuff like that. So I have That's all awesome. new respect for it. But Jay called me in his office the first time we were going up there. This is the MB two days. He's like, Lambert, I know you're a huge Red Sox fan, but you cannot wear your Red Sox hat to the game when we go. We're guests of the Yankees. I'm like, <laughs> I got it. So um that's a cool experience. But yeah, just Red Sox fan just because of Wade Boggs back in the day and just have have kept that going. Um, I tell mm-hmm. my oldest son Hunter now, you know, he was the golden horseshoe that they needed because he was born in 04 and the first Red Sox World Series that they won in many, many, many years was in 04. So it's thanks to him. It was thanks to him. He was the he was born in July and we won the World Series that year. Man. And um thankful enough that the entire family has been able to turn into Red Sox fans and we've been to several games at Fenway and my youngest plays travel ball now and is getting some cool. he's a sophomore and getting some college interest and so um, we're a baseball family for sure. 
I assume whenever you guys go up to New Hampshire, you guys go up a couple days early, hope that the Red Sox are playing at home and catch some games at Fenway, right? And when we were doing the practices and stuff and not just showing from flying in and showing up and doing the races, yeah. I would definitely check the schedule whenever the schedule, our schedule would come out. I would check their schedule and start trying to find a few tickets here and there once in a while. And um, luckily on the road, I get my own rental car on the road, so I don't have to share a van with four or five other guys. So I yeah. can just take off and go to a baseball game and, you know, Hirschman and I and uh, a few of the other spotters will take off and go to some games, whether we're in Detroit or wherever we're at. If, yeah. There's a local game nearby that that works out schedule wise. You'll probably find three or four of us that are that are going and buying scout tickets or whatever it is yeah. to get in and 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 visit me as parts as we can. But yeah, it, it, Red Sox and Fenway is definitely the, the top of the list. I know it's not across the street, but next time you're at Dover or Richmond, if you if you want to come over to Camden Yards or Nats Park, hit me up and we'll go to a game together and we'll enjoy our time. I would definitely I will definitely do that. I'm I'm interested for sure. Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Well, Chris, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate this. You have given me, I think this is the longest interview that I've done on this entire show and it's been 126 episodes and this may be the best. And I don't just say that because I'm looking at you right now. I truly think this may have been the best. So this is, it's been a thrill for me. I've wanted to have you on for a long time and I know that you're in the midst of a playoff battle and I barely even asked you about it. So I need, I need to ask at least one question. Uh, You guys made the final four last year. You guys are good enough to do it this year. You think this year could possibly be that year where you guys get the monkey off your back and bring home the title? Uh, Honestly, I really do. I mean, if you look at our body of work as a whole this year, uh, we've led more laps than we led last year, even winning seven races. Um, We've had pretty much the same amount of top fives and top tens. And yeah, but just speed wise, I mean, I feel like that we've had more speed this year. If you take, if you take that, that rabbit that you're chasing in the five car with Kyle Larson, who has obviously made us all approach races completely different. Um, I mean, he's just, he's just super talented and he's made everybody step their game up. Even at Richmond, I mean, at Bristol this past weekend, you know, Benny's the one, the world's best at knowing when it's time to push and when the time to go and when it's not, but with Larson, you've got to go every lap. You got to run 10 out of 10 every lap or else you're not going to compete with him. And, and hope that you can do that over the course of 500 laps and, and, and make it work. But I feel like that we as a group with Denny's mindset right now, with Gabe Hart's mindset right now, with the cars that we've been able to produce on the 750 tracks, especially um, versus last year. Um, I definitely, if we can get through this round here, this round here is, is probably going to be the tough one, of course, because we haven't had a, a good run at the Roval since it became a, a race. Yeah. Um, but luckily we haven't had to. We've either won Talladega leading into it or had good enough points cushion that we didn't need to. But right. we can get through this round here. There's no doubt in my mind that we can go to, to the final round and, and make it to, to Phoenix and at least compete for – we'll have more speed as a team than we did last year if we can get there and, and yeah. they'll have to beat us instead of just uh, just beating us when we, before we ever show up. I, thought, I saw you were about to say Homestead there. Yes, it's <laughs> – you know, it, it for for yet forever. You know, the, the I know, last, man. best three words you ever hear is Texas Phoenix Homestead. You know what I mean? And yeah, and we knew the season was over with, and and even next year with Homestead moving to later in the year, mm-hmm. it's going to be back to you talk about Homestead. All right, what are you doing the weekend after that? Well, we're going racing. We're not we're not off. Right. But it's uh, I, I have mean, slip I of the tongues too. It is. It, it it's just habit. You know what I mean? We're all creatures of yeah. habit, especially in this industry, and. uh it's hard not to, to talk about going to Homestead to finish the year. I don't know what the highlight of this chat has been, whether it's uh, the fact that I figured out you listened to the show, um, hearing about all the tales of the Red Bull days, just your experiences as a spotter. I I mean it, man. This has been awesome. I cannot thank you enough. I'll have to repay you somehow. So whenever you're in the D.C. area, Nat's tickets on me. What do you say? I mean, uh, it's definitely, like I said, I've listened to your show for quite a while now. I enjoy the the videos that you put up on social media with the drivers. I mean, they're hilarious. Uh, My family now watches them without me even having to show them. And when I I come on the show, they're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's Davey. I said, I don't know that I ever really had a conversation with him much more than just throwing your hand up or something. I said, but yeah. And they're like, well, that's cool. So uh, I'm definitely, if we're in the area, if you're in this area and there's something going on, we'll definitely get together and, and we'll have fun doing whatever we do. So I'm a celebrity in the Gabe Hart or Gabe Hart Lambert household. Sorry. You are your videos. I mean, it's, it's, 
I'm I'm a podcast guy. I'm the only one in the house of the podcast guy. I am too. Um, but your videos that you put up, um, which are obviously have taken off over the last few months and weeks, is is my boys. Their TikTok and their um, social media, and that you know, that's just how they. Yeah. You never know they have a phone other than it's being used for something like that. So <laughs> we got a family group thread that has started, obviously between the four of us. And I'm not on TikTok, but I live vicariously through them. Um, I, I see your your stuff on Twitter, obviously, but you know yeah. we've got our our family group chat is a lot of just TikTok videos that are funny that people send, yeah, and yeah. that's the one of the first ones that gets posted every week. Whenever you post it, is all right, check this out, and I'm like, well, that's that's nice. So. That's so cool. Well, I appreciate those kind words. Tell everybody I say hello and thank you for watching and listening and everything. Um, I've said it like five times, but seriously, this has been a thrill. I, I can't thank you enough. It's been so awesome. And we look forward to seeing your race on the rest of the year. Hopefully, we'll see you hosting a trophy at the end of the year down in Phoenix, man. That would be the definitely end to a, a strange and, and fun year. But I, I, if we can just make it there with a shot, then I feel like it's been a, a successful year. So that's all you can ask for. Yes, sir. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure, man. Absolutely. Thank you, David. And we're back. Welcome back from the Chris Lambert Invitational, everybody. What a great chat, right? I, I love Chris. I love getting to know him. I loved his story. And again, part two of this, this insightful conversation, it started out on a really heavy note, but I, and I told him, but I just so appreciate his transparency and his openness and his honesty, because even though he has shared that stuff before, Still, it's just, it's amazing, you know, the power that stories like that have to help other people. So, Chris, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for sharing everything. I cannot wait to see you soon, my friend. And best of luck this weekend in Talladega and for the rest of the season as we get on through the playoffs. Let's briefly preview Talladega Super Speedway. And I say briefly because I mean very brief. There's not a whole lot to preview specifically because it is so unpredictable, so crazy, so chaotic. All these different adjectives that you want to describe, that is Talladega. Uh, is it going to be a Penske show like we've seen in the past? Because Ryan Blaney has multiple wins here. Brad Keselowski, I think a five or six time winner here. Joey Logano hasn't had good luck as of late, but he will be fast. Is it going to be manufacturer strength and numbers? Ford, Toyota, Chevrolet, are they going to work together? Or is it going to be free-for-all and every driver for themselves trying to lock themselves in? Also, Michael Massey pointed out to me on the Front Stretch podcast that weird things happen every four years at Talladega. Strange winners, unpredictable winners from David Reagan to Brad Keselowski to Ricky Stenhouse Jr. And next in line is the 2021 fall race at Talladega. So we will see what happens. The Truck Series is also in action. I believe the Xfinity Series is also in action. Just kidding. The Truck Series is not in action. I think it's only Xfinity. Don't quote me on that. Nope, it is trucks. Triple header, trucks, Xfinity, cup, because I'm working the cup or the truck and Xfinity race. Clearly, I'm all over the place. Yellowwood 500, Sunday afternoon, 2 p.m. on NBC. Check it out. Lug nuts of the week. Cue that funky music, white boy. Penalties post Vegas. Rodney Childers has been suspended for one race because of two loose lug nuts. Greg Zipadell is going to fill in for Kevin Harvick this weekend at Talladega. Ben Bayshore, Phil Surgeon, Cliff Daniels, and Travis Mack were each fined 10 grand for one loose lug. And Michael Bumgarner on the one car of Josh Berry was fined 5K for the same offense. Some silly season news. Daniel Hemmerk to Colleague Racing for 2022. That's interesting. And Ricky Stenhouse Jr. will be back with JTG Doherty for next year as well. Joey Gase, thankfully, is okay, awake, alert, all good after being transported to the hospital after his wild wreck at Las Vegas. That's good to see. Santino Ferrucci is going to be competing for Sam Hunt Racing this weekend at Talladega. Today, as of this recording, I actually spoke with Santino for a future episode of Victory Lane, and we talked a little bit about Talladega, so stay tuned for that. The Window of Hope initiative by Kurt Busch is officially a go Pink window nets are going to be on the Cup Series cars at the Roval, uh, promoting breast cancer awareness. That is such a cool initiative. Jonathan Hassler will be the crew chief for Ryan Blaney next season at Team Penske. Jeremy Bullen stays on the two car with Austin Sindrick. And Joey Logano still is paired with Paul Wolf. Sad news to report, Briggs Cunningham III, he passed away. Uh, longtime NASCAR owner in the Arkham Menard Series, a champion at that. Chase Briscoe posted a pretty heartfelt message to the Cunningham family, so check that out if you want. But 
RIP to Briggs Cunningham III and the Cunningham family. We are thinking of you. And real quick, some schedule updates for the Xfinity and the Truck Series. Portland, the Pacific Northwest, back on the Xfinity Series schedule. The NASCAR National Series schedule for the first time in 22 years. Their Xfinity Series is going there. Trucks are going to Mid-Ohio. Xfinity no longer will go there because Portland takes that spot. Trucks are also going to Sonoma out west. And they're going to Lucas Oil Raceway IRP. I cannot wait for that. Check out the full schedules. They're anywhere you want to find them on the internet. But cool stuff happening over there. And that'll wrap things up for episode 127 of Victory Lane 2.0. If you like what you heard here today, please do me a favor. Leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe to the podcast. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. We should be available there for your consumption. And if we're not, drop me a line and I'll try to rectify that issue for you. Again, great conversation this week with Chris Lambert. It was unbelievable to chat with him. Great to get his perspective on so many different things and just his honesty and openness. I I cannot say it enough, but I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, Chris. And best of luck this weekend in Dega, my man. Until next week when we have on another guest from the world of NASCAR. I got a lot of episodes in the can, party people. Already recorded, edited, ready to rock and roll. This has been episode 127 of Victory Lane. Enjoy Talladega this weekend. Get vaccinated, please. We're trying to save the world here, and I'll catch you on the flip side.